0: The second part is that it has given rise to a bunch of what I think of as quasi-experts, people with good titles who should know better, but who have used this moment to step in and say, hey, I'm a professor at Harvard. And sure, you're a professor at Harvard, but you're like speaking a lot of nonsense. You don't have any expertise in this topic because expertise is specific. So how do you, if you're a normal American and how do you deal with that? That's the challenge is people are struggling to figure out who are the real experts and who's just making it up.
1: Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash Pod. As a patron, you get our weekly bonus episode, which comes out every Monday, a discount on merch, and access to the entire back catalog of patron-only episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So as we've been covering quite closely on this show for quite a while, we are at a moment of cleavage in the United States pandemic response, and a lot of things have been changing quite quickly. The CDC changed community risk guidelines in late February, turning a red map of the United States yellow and green overnight (laughs) and easing recommendations for masking indoors. (laughs) Encouraging most people to go unmasked, even when cases are still high and federal funding is running out for existing covid programs from ending free monoclonal antibody therapies to scaling back already confirmed orders of antivirals like Paxlovid. Uh, free federal coverage for COVID 19 treatment and testing for the uninsured ends this week. Congratulations. Mission accomplished.
2: Yeah. So basically, we're transitioning to the point now, I guess, where what the pandemic is just going to be a matter of just basically uh, relying on all the already totally busted ways that our private health insurance focused healthcare system already just leaves basically everybody out
1: yeah especially because free Great. vaccines for <laughs> just, uninsured just people is ending in two weeks so. yeah. <laughs> the, the, no
2: no
3: the federal government decided that they liked our old material better and they wanted us to go back to
2: that <laughs> could <laughs> so you just do this. yeah could you just do old death panel again you do you know, like 2019 pand- death panel more? <laughs> right. yeah yeah exactly we've heard
1: you talk about covid enough folks, you know yeah And uh, as per friend of the panel at WSBGNL, who has been keeping a running tally of this on Twitter, the New York Times has reported average deaths over 1000 people per day for all of five but the last 214 days in the United States. So in the midst of, you know, a week of finger pointing over the pandemic funding and who exactly is to blame about the fact that the pandemic funding is ending.
2: Yeah, you know, Biden administration loves having a new target to to point the finger at in you know, Congress, but
1: pointing fingers is way more important than doing anything to deal with the rapidly disappearing pandemic response. Um, and we, of course, are being faced with the threat of a new looming wave of covid the Biden administration has also announced that in April they will be replacing White House COVID czar Jeff Zients with current Brown University School of Public Health dean and COVID television personality Ashish Jaw. So we've referenced Jaw many times on the show, but we have yet to dedicate an entire discussion to him specifically. And today we're going to correct this and walk through what Jaw's appointment says about the future of the U.S. COVID response By getting into what Ja seems to believe about COVID.
2: Yeah, I think uh, this is interesting. I mean, when this announcement happened, I pretty immediately was joking like, oh, wow. It's like it's almost like they took the one that we explicitly had not like the one prominent public health expert that they feasibly could have chosen that we had not yet dedicated an entire sort of profile treatment to big in mistake. Which is, yeah. Big mistake because <laughs> unfortunately, so, yeah, I mean, it, like, I guess I would preface this by saying like so many things that we've talked about recently, like we've been very critical of Jeff's science. It's no small thing that he is stepping down. Like it's great that he's stepping down. However, I think what we need to talk about today basically is that there are huge problems I think with the uh, person that they have selected And that points to, I think, a real possibility that basically it's going to potentially be sort of like meet the new boss, same as the old boss, like a lot of the same kind of ideology will be carried over. We're going to make that case over the course of today. So, you know, if that, uh, I've said this on a couple of episodes before, but like, you know, if you saw the news and sort of uncritically, we're thinking like, oh yeah, this is great. Like we, the, we get rid of the bad guy that we know we don't like Jeff science. Right. And so th- and this guy seems, this guy's a doctor, right? This guy actually is, uh, you know, is a doctor and he's been talking about public health on TV for the whole pandemic. Surely he'll be better, you know, as we'll sort of get into, mm-hmm. uh, not so fast.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really think that like thinking about this transition has made me go back to reconsidering what exactly is the uh, the policy czar uh, mm. in in the history of the White House. Right. And and I think there's, there's really sort of like a disagreement, a sort of conceptual uh, murkiness on, on what, you know, people like uh, Zian Sir Jha in these positions uh, do. Right. On, on the one hand. You know, you look at the history of positions like this. Like, the term czar is obviously not official. That's a thing that, like, the media applies. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an informal kind of designation. It's been applied since, you know, roughly the presidency of Woodrow Wilson to try to characterize these people who are supposed to, like, sit above all of the agencies, kind of at the very close to the hand of the president. Um, They don't necessarily have, like, any sort of, like, clear constitutional uh, authority role. They don't have to be confirmed. Uh, By Congress, Um, although one can imagine that like that would just invite more stupid hearings. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, they have this like constitutively like blurry role. So like on the one hand, the like one image of what this kind of czar does is like they're the coordinator. They know the bureaucracy like the back of their hand. They know all the different departments. They know where all of the uh, sort of legal uh, levers are and how to cut through red tape I to like get say, government
2: to do big things. I thought you were going to say bodies are buried.
3: Yeah, well, I wasn't <laughs> going to use that because I mean, let's be clear: bodies are buried all over the country right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but the um and and we all know where they're buried, but uh, uh, it's 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 becoming inconvenient to talk about that. Right. Um. But the <laughs> uh the other so like that that's the sort of one image is the sort of like master uh red tape cutter. Um, and I think that people who were within the administration, I think that that's what they thought Jeff Zients would be or right. was he was like, a, you know, we, I think, criticized him rightly as having this management consultant approach to thinking about what government does that ultimately, you know, is is a very, you know, under promise and over deliver approach mm-hmm. to thinking mm-hmm, about what the role mm-hmm. of the federal government is, which I, I don't like. And I think is is a bad thing. And, and there's plenty of examples that we could get into and we've gotten into on, on how Zian sort of underperformed in that role, but that's not the only image of the czar that has been out there. And I think there's, there's a lot of people who've suggested that, you know, if you look at the history of this, the other role that czars play is really, you know, a, a pretty symbolic one, mm. uh, one that's really about vibes <laughs> Um, You know, at its best, they become the public, you know, at their best, they sort of become the public face of, uh, you know, uh, uh, policy kind of apparatus that's like popular. And they and they give the president, you know, maybe some kind of like sheen um, to what they're doing. I think the sort of example of this is like, uh, you know, upon taking office, Bill Clinton sort of appointed was like, what are you going to do about AIDS, President Clinton? uh, He's like, oh, I'm going to appoint a czar. Right uh to like and it's like, okay, well, that in large part was you know ha- had an important like symbolic kind of ring to it as opposed to like substantively uh, changing the way that like government uh works. But the other thing that Czars can do is simply be the way of deflecting blame from the president It's like right. well, if something went <laughs> wrong, it's the Czar's fault, not mine <laughs> um and but I but so my my supposition about Ja, who's had, yeah, I, I really find it funny, all the coverage of this is people are like, oh, he's had some government experience. It's like, OK, <laughs> well, he's testified before Congress. right? <laughs> he's consulted once or twice for the White House, never served in any public health capacity at the state level, which is where most of the public health authority lives in the United States. So he's never done that. Um, he is really not as something we should get into. He doesn't really do in his professional work infectious disease work.
2: No. Um prior to the pandemic he was pr- mostly concerned with doing a lot of basically academic work researching healthcare systems. Uh he did a lot of work, right, looking at comparing various international healthcare systems and he very actually prominently during the 2019-2020 like election cycle was pretty adamantly against Medicare for all actually, right? Right.
3: Yeah. So it's, you know, so like in thinking about this is like, how did he get there is like, he developed a television personality for himself as the Dean of a public health school, really the administrator of a public health school. And then, and then very quickly it's like, Oh, leading public health infectious disease expert. Right. Right? And so, but I, I have to imagine that this signals that the Biden administration really wants this post not to do the coordination work uh in part because maybe they think that they have will have less to coordinate. Right. Uh
2: but to really do the vibes work. Yes. And this is actually exactly what I wanted to get into before we get into talking about those sort of specific vibes that Ashish Jha will bring to the job or that we can assume that Ashish Jha will bring to the job because it's important to look at this, you know, incoming as he's coming in in April, sort of like why this happened, I guess, before we even get into sort of like what the what the sort of issues uh, with him are. And I think to distill What I think happened here is this kind of I think this reflects a broader conversation that we've been having for a long time about how clearly pretty obsessed with optics. The Mm -hmm. Biden administration is clearly above and beyond concern for things like human life or the (laughs) (laughs) pandemic, Uh, for example. And on that register, if you're the Biden administration, right, this is why this is why I think this happened. Basically, if you're the Biden administration, you're heading into the midterms. You have a few problems with your COVID team. (laughs) Those problems go something like this. Uh, One, your pandemic response is overseen by Jeff Zients. You know, based on what we know of the internal dynamics of the Biden administration, like the way that this is articulated as a problem goes something like uh, Jeff, the liberals are saying such mean, contemptible things about you. They're saying you're not a public health expert. They're saying, what's a business guy doing leading the pandemic response? You All know,
1: valid questions.
2: Um, they're saying he doesn't know the first thing about public health, <laughs> etc. And so that in, that sort of intersects with the sort of the second problem the Biden administration faces here, which that is that they have done a fucking horrible job in their pandemic response, And I would kind of add to that, even not only have they done a horrible job in their pandemic response, they have done a horrible job even communicating that the pandemic is still a problem, because obviously, for reasons that we've talked about at length, they would sort of prefer that it go away, I think. Um, Right. uh, Or at least the public concern for it go away, public agitation, that they would prefer that they not have sort of rocky political waters all sort of around them. They would prefer that not have something like, for example, us as a left, for example, pressing against them. But so how do you rationalize that? Right. I think the way that they did that to the Biden administration, it's like the the bad pandemic response. Clearly, if you if you take their their own words really seriously, Mm -hmm. the bad pandemic response is not their problem. To them, they've done a phenomenal job. And instead, the way that you rationalize this is that they have an optics problem that, in fact, their pandemic response was not bad, but instead they've had poor communication. This comes up over and over when you hear about like, you know, these uh, unnamed, always anonymous senior administration officials saying things to you know places like Politico or CNN, like, look, Walensky, Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director. Like, yeah, she's done a great job. Great policy. It's just, you know, the communication's not so good. She's bad on she selling the media public. media
1: training. Right. Yeah.
2: And you hear the same things about like uh, Javier Becerra, the head of HHS, other people like that. And you put, so anyway, you put those two things together and you get answer. The answer to the first problem is clearly Zion, you know, needs to go, or maybe it would be helpful. Maybe he doesn't need to go, but it might be helpful for him to go. Right. And the answer to number two is we have to p- replace him with someone with the following characteristics. One, they should have some form, really any form, of health adjacent degree, like mm-hmm. an MD, doctor, public health professional of some kind. Two, they have to be media savvy, mm-hmm. which we know that Jaw is. Most important. Uh, and three, uh, and I think this is actually the most important point, and the the biggest knock against Jaw is they kind of they definitely want someone who's not necessarily going to rock the boat because they have to be kind of able to... They have to find someone, basically, I think, who will dependably, like, could be counted on to essentially accept whatever they tell them the political reality is and sort of roll with it, which fits Jaw to a T because he's basically defended most of the major... Uh, decisions of the Biden administration he's even has he's sort of lightly critiqued them he's you know let them get away with a lot yeah Yeah, we will get into that and then and the reason I say this is the most important thing is because I think if they really wanted to do a true changing in the guard here if they wanted to actually signal something more than optics if they wanted to basically say we're going to change up how we do the pandemic response and we're going to do better they would not have gotten Jaw. Right. They would have totally gotten someone else. Yeah.
1: And I think also the thing, too, is that, you know, the, the Biden administration in no way has admitted in any sense that they're caving to the pressure to fire Jeff Science right, right now. The the real framework and the line that they're all sticking to, which, you know, is probably also true, is that Zines is not leaving because the Biden administration has learned some kind of lesson or because they've acknowledged this widespread criticism of Zines being in charge of the COVID-19 response. You know, it's they've not even said that it's like the problem was that he's an entrepreneur. They've got <laughs> Fauci out there being like, oh, I'm gonna miss my buddy Jeff Science. Um, This is, you know, they're saying, oh, this is different. Zients was always temporary and he'd like already committed to working in the West Wing. And President Biden like begged him to stay a couple of times and he's just like ready to go back to being a private citizen. So it's, you know, you can tell how carefully obsessed they are with perception and optics just from the fact that they're not even willing to accept, you know, this is valid criticism. So we replaced it. We, we replaced him with someone with an MD, with an MPH, right? They're they're not even going to own up and say that point. They're just going to imply that point in their appointment and try and ignore that the criticism even happened.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, their argument about the, the value of science was, you know, always that he sort of had this sort of, you know, experience at very top levels in, in, in government, and they had never really relied on him as you know, a lightning rod to deflect criticism to. He was not visible. Right. I can only think of maybe a handful of times where I ever saw him like appear at a, at a really prominent event in public where they, they got like tons of coverage. He was very sort of voce, I think, through, through like a good chunk of uh, uh, of the months. Right. Um, and I think that now it's like, OK, we're, we're coming up towards an election We at the very least, we need somebody who we can who is visible, who at best Mm -hmm. will be calm and soothing. And at worst, when, you know, it, you know, worst case scenario, bad things like I mean. And again, I think that they're like the importance of that is they're banking on the fall. They're maybe banking on the following things. One, we're not going to be able to get anything more out of Congress um, at all. Right. Right. And and. You know that that that's an impossibility. So any sort of sense that like we're going to be that like the job of this person will be um, coordinating a bunch of new additional funding that seems to be out the window. Two, they're banking on the fact that like things will uh, you know proceed apace and continue and and just like get monotonically better. Uh, Again, that is a a, a, as we said, I think maybe in the last two episodes, like that's a pretty big gamble. (laughs) And three. I think that they're uh, betting that the fact that the the public is already sort of familiar with jaw, he's already sort of tested. He's arguably the sort of the most visible, uh, quote unquote, public health expert on channels like MSNBC um, that like best case scenario, these things sort of become more palatable. Worst case scenario, he's visible. People already know him. Hence, they when blame needs to be assigned, they'll know who to blame because he's already visible. Um, so I, I just think that like it's it's worth looking at Jaw not, not not necessarily just for his kind of appropriateness because whatever like <laughs> if you look at the history of czars they range from totally have experience in government in this area uh, to totally have substantive experience outside of government in this area to what the fuck um, and, <laughs> and like Jaw you know he's he's edge he edges towards the what the fuck. Uh, kind of answer here, because again, as plenty of epidemiologists, I know like she's jaw. Yeah, exactly. What has he done in around infectious diseases again? And when people say, oh, he, you know, he doesn't have experience in government. The response that his defenders kind of within, um, the white house circle says like, well, he's a smart guy. He'll figure it out. I don't know. The federal government's pretty complicated and not having any experience (laughs) at the state level either. "Mm, I would, let me tell you something. If I were in jobs position, I'd be nervous as hell. About taking that, about taking that on, I would not think. Oh yeah, smart enough. Yeah, you you, you can certainly do it. I think that that's. <laughs> I think it's just like uh, I stayed at a Holiday and Express last night. Sort <laughs> of reasoning.
1: No, and I, I think this is also sort of indicative of something that we've talked about a little bit off and on, but like in this instance, is very. It's made to be very obvious, right? Which is that this is kind of the the problem when like the critiques of the Biden plan um, end up sort of getting siloed into critiques of the individual actors who yes. have their names attached. Exactly. Because ultimately, like the problem, right, is not um, Jeff Zients specifically, like Jeff Zients is part of the problem. The problem is the White House COVID response. The problem is the fact that there is you know, very little funding left to go around to continue our current pandemic protections. And we have just completely reasserted a new normal with a much higher level of acceptable community spread before states are going to be obligated to re-implement masking, right? And so what you have going into this sort of situation of just absolute, like, extremely preventable needless pointless fucking austerity that is a problem of the administration's own making i mean they have downplayed COVID so hard that it is ridiculous that they could even assume that pointing the finger to say oh well the problem is that like you know congress won't give us the money well no shit because you've been pretending and telling everyone that COVID is no big deal of course they're not gonna you know it's this kind of thing of like well you know, yeah, you can you can replace the figurehead, but this is a classic PR tactic, right? This is classic image management. Instead of things being centered in the fact that there's a problem with the administration, there's a problem with the way that we do things, there's a problem with the values that are sort of represented in our systems and our institutions and our decision making and our cost-benefit analysis. Nope. The problem There's a is, problem
2: with cost-benefit analysis.
1: <laughs> right, right. Nope. Nope. The problem is. The individual. The problem is the person with the sort of biggest paycheck in the room. And that's fundamentally sort of obviously an easier target as a sort of political goal. And yes, these fuckers need to go. But it also means that you get into this situation where you sort of easily have a moment where you lose a lot of momentum for a movement because you had a lot of pressure there to fire Zion's, and that was incredibly productive. But with Zion's gone, and with a lot of people, frankly, satisfied by simply the fact that the you know, the issue for them was that Zions was not a public health professional, right? You lose time, you lose momentum, and it's a really effective strategy if your goal is to just continue with what you're doing yeah. after facing public criticism. This is play number one, yeah. right? And the, the fact of the matter is, is that it works, unfortunately. And this is sort of, I think, this should tell us a lot, you know, about what the Biden administration really wants out of JA and sort of what they want out of their uh, pandemic response. And I think that that, to me, just sort of signals as a bottom line, they're happy with how things are, because there is no signaling to me as someone from the outside that there's any urgency here to change any of the dynamics that are resulting in them not having any pandemic response and w- one that is quickly vanishing, right?
2: Well, and this is why I think uh, we wanted to make sure to, you know, talk at length about Jaws, like she's Jaws specific ideological stripes, as it were, because I, I think one, you know, one of the things that you said earlier about, you know, basically the Biden administration being in this position where kind of the, I mean, a lot of them, other than the sort of finger pointing, a lot of the messaging is sort of, you know, cal- calm down, tamp down, like don't, don't worry <laughs> about it um get vaxxed
1: and relaxed stay
2: vaxxed and relaxed yeah uh you know and in fact now we have you know many of their uh basically unofficial surrogates uh etc people like your Matt Iglesias is who just before recording time screenshot tweeted pictures of my fucking Twitter account saying, Look, his book has like communist in the title. Oh my God. (laughs) He's like, You know, people tell you who they
1: are circling health communism.
2: But they, um, Matt, but you know, these people basically will, uh, you know, have been literally on a tear in the last couple of days because of a piece that uh, Justin Feldman and Abby Cardis, friends of the show and frequent collaborators of ours, Uh, wrote for protean magazine like they've been on a tear about how like the precautionary principle a fundamental feature of epidemiology uh like a like all public a base like a cornerstone of the idea of public health fails in the face of um cost benefit analysis anyway the (laughs) the point the point being like you know all of um, what all of this like ideological signaling is towards is this like again just you know, relax about it. It is unreasonable, as we've talked about, in really especially recently, but in, throughout a lot of our episodes, it is unreasonable to be worried about the pandemic. Therefore, we should relax. And that's why it's particularly telling, irrespective of a lot of the even the, the questions about like whether Ja will be able to or is even going to be maybe even expected to do a lot of the actual coordination jobs. Or the coordination work that is supposed to be part of the job, uh, him coming in, I think, signals that the the main reason that they're bringing him in is like what are the what are the words that people use to describe Jaw? Mm-hmm. He's a calming presence. This is you see this reassuring. in media all the time. Yeah, friendly. reassuring, friendly,
1: approachable. Uh,
2: approachable. There's you know, people uses will plain
1: language, talks to you right. like he's your friend, and all of
3: those things are correct. And by the correct. way, yeah, I mean yeah. he's he's exceptionally smooth. He's good on TV and I, you know, in, in a like preternatural way, he's, he's really, he's really good at it. And, and, and on topics that I think are really hard to be like to smoothly discuss at all. Absolutely. Now the content is a different question, Yes. but like if, if telegenicity <laughs> is the, the characteristic that matters, right. which, Hey, the, the Biden administration wouldn't be the first administration to recognize that, um, <laughs> you know, uh, then okay yeah okay you got your guy right
2: yeah. no so he right so he's got charisma mm-hmm. right undeniable and in fact i would argue one of the reasons that we have not until now spent as much time talking about him explicitly although we have clipped him we have called out specific things that we've had he has said over the years but you know one of the reasons that i think even though we've had we've even had like plans for episodes before where we were like going to talk about kind of the problems with jaw or whatever and then yeah, something ja had the back some other, half
1: and then got pushed right
2: and then like some other huge news thing blew up and we had we wanted to talk about that instead so actually one of the only interesting I guess basically what I would argue is one of the only reasons actually that he's sort of evaded so much of our of our more explicit focus I guess is because actually one of the components of that charisma basically which I find really interesting and also pretty problematic in terms of ultimately being the mouthpiece for uh the Biden administration's coronavirus response is that actually? You know, one thing that I will give I will give him basically is that he has a phenomenal way of even more so than a lot of these other experts saying incredibly unreasonable things in a way that sound very sound. Yeah, right. Very, like,
1: very, very measured and calm and seems totally normal. Right. And until you really think about it,
2: right. You'll you'll hear. Um. I mean, I'm gonna play some. I'm gonna play some clips of uh of Jaw in a minute, but long time listeners will know like the type of, you know, clips that we grab for the show frequently, for example. um, Often they are just like things that are ridiculous on their face, but are just nevertheless kind of accepted as, you know, really kind of like within the normal framework of even like, you know, someone could probably on CNN say a term like we talked about in last week's public episode, economic endemicity, and, you know, no one would Blink No one would bad an eye about it, right? but you know jaw Jaw does have this kind of yeah like charismatic evasion to him, which is why I think what i would what I would suggest that we do is um, I think one of the best interviews to sort of show where jaw kind of lies mm-hmm. on an ideological position is this one that he did in January for New York Times Sway podcast hosted by Kara Swisher, which was.
1: Double bill. (laughs) This is going
2: to this might make some of uh, our longtime listeners. I don't know. I hope you're sitting down as I say this, which is yeah, a double billed podcast appearance, a co-interview, if you will, with Emily Oster, (laughs) of all people.
1: Yeah, no. And I I think, you know, even if your criticism is like, well, this just sounds like a lot of attack of like Jaws personality and character. I, I did appreciate Ellie Murray, who's also an epidemiologist. Her critique was that, you know, she said we must have hundreds of highly qualified public health officials with real on the ground in the trenches, COVID decision making expertise you know, people who've been working at local county and state health departments, but that Biden chose an academic MD, likely not for a new approach. So if you think about context, right, he has been spending so much time as a person who has spent the pandemic honing their messaging skills. And that is ultimately what Biden's tapping into. And that's sort of the bottom line here. And that's why it's important to understand, you know, what he communicates and how he does it. And this interview with Oster is kind of perfect because I think there's something about the dynamic of Oster being there and them being sort of chummy that his guard is down a little bit. And he almost, you know, I've watched way way too many Ashish Ja appearances yeah. in the last week. Too many. But there was like something, there's something different about them because a lot of them, he's so talented, right? He's so smooth. But there's something about this one where he's a little more relaxed and I think he's charmed by Kara Swisher too. And he kind of like shows a little bit more of his hand than he normally does.
2: Yeah. He also says, I I think part of that too, just to be really clear, it's not just like these two were sort of randomly paired together. He has several times, uh, in appearances and on, and actually explicitly on Twitter said things like, uh, one of the reasons that was like a, that Brown university was a draw for him when he moved to start working at Brown was his respect for Emily Oster specifically. So they have like, they have some form of professional relationship already like they both work at the same university they very clearly it becomes clear from this interview that they have like a very friendly rapport and you know obviously that in itself raises red flags you know uh, before we even sort of get into some of the clips which are going to focus mostly on what jaw says but also include i think some of the things that emily oster says where you can hear jaw saying like yeah 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 (laughs) uh in the in the background you know um like that that in itself should be a a red flag. I think in in part because, and I will say one thing that's interesting that I think is like not really talked about Jaw very much is that his uh, undergrad, basically his Columbia University degree, is in economics. So mm-hmm. it's actually no surprise to me necessarily that he, he appreciates Emily's work. Well, that he talks not only that he appreciates Emily's work, but that he talks about um, and he will explicitly use like costs and benefits, so like cost benefit analysis, basically framings when he talks about some of this COVID stuff. Anyway, um, I'm just going to I think I'm going to take us through a couple of clips of this. That cool with you guys? Yeah, yeah. definitely. So there's a lot of ground that's covered in this interview in particular. Um, a lot of it will be about schools, which I think obviously that's you know a very important sort of hot button issue within the pandemic. And really, as we've talked about a lot, signals a lot of, you know, can be understood, I think, as like a lens through which to understand what a lot of people think about other pandemic priorities, as it were. Um, but in this clip, this is a little bit more open ended about his sort of philosophy towards the pandemic and his philosophy towards kind of like communicating on and during the pandemic. And recall also just to make sure this is really explicit, all of these clips, uh, this uh, Ashish Jaw and Emily Oster New York Times interview, this is happening kind of in the middle of the, the peak of the Omicron surge. But I think what
0: Emily describes is exactly right, which is much of the country wants to live in either zero or one, right? And there's a chunk of people who still think like this is the only issue we should be thinking about. It's all COVID all the time. And so anytime I want to pivot to saying like COVID is a real problem, but it is one problem of many things we need to be thinking about, kids missing school is also a really big problem. People do not want to discuss any of that. And and they immediately trot out, but 850,000 Americans have died, which is true and horrible. On the other hand, you have a group of people who just, right, as Emily said, they're in the zero column. They're ready to move on. Like COVID's in the rear view mirror. And the problem is like, you need something in between and you need something where we can live with COVID even now. And once the surge is over, even easier and better. Um, But at the same time, we've still got to do certain things a little bit differently (laughs) for a while longer and that's not a lockdown but that's also not being done with covid.
1: Ugh. Okay, so this is like this is like the classic <laughs> a ashish third way, if what you if will. there were a
3: third way? <laughs> what if there
1: were a third way? This is like the classic ashish jha genre to me, right? I'm not sure what we call it. Maybe we call it the third way vibe. But this is kind of like <laughs> empty platitudes that don't mean a whole lot of anything. Right. Right? Savvy enough to mention npis as being necessary not to downplay and dismiss deaths but essentially does redound to well not to
2: downplay it but to say don't worry about it too much as yeah. a priority it, this is the issue it
3: doesn't redound to anything i was just yes. about to say That's like the point it just sort it of downs to nothing
1: it, it redounds to like well good points on both sides Right. Like, and that's not actually a response to the statement. It's a very clever redirection. Right. Exactly. Um, and it's just an assertion that despite the fact that people who want zero restrictions right now are not really necessarily like demanding a reality that's possible. Right. Because that is rhetorically acknowledged in Ja's statement. He's saying like, it's not quite time. Right. But their demand for it, nevertheless, he's asserting, is quite valid, and that's well, how these is, things yeah. go from innocuous and smooth to fucking kind of <laughs> creepy and harmful.
3: Well, right, and I and I think that if I could be, um, let me. Take on for a moment the mantle of a cost benefit analyst, okay? Uh-huh, yeah. Um, because okay, we we've we've done a like a whole sort of episode on the history of cost benefit analysis, which everybody should go back and, and listen to because it it's very good. Um, interview with Frank Pasquale, but you know, I do think that like the one thing that uh, cost benefit analysts say that I I do think like has a ring of for all of the, the trappings of the the uh, the discipline, it has it has like. Just an important ring of truth to it, which is that, like, OK, in any decision that you make, there will be trade-offs. Yes, we can all acknowledge that Th- this is this is transparently true of all decisions. <laughs> Duh. Uh, and you don't need cost benefit analysis to tell you that. Um, but then the thing that follows from that is when you're making them and especially when you're making them at a very high public level and you want to use that mode of rationality in justifying what you're talking about, you then have to confront what those trade-offs are. And talk about them and defend why the trade-offs you prefer are the ones that make sense. <laughs> and I think that this, you know, some people are at a zero and other people are at a one. And what we want is something in between is de facto, like it, <laughs> it is a refusal to accept what those trade-offs are or Absolutely. to defend them. And I think that that's something that that is often misapprehended about the uh, critiques that, that I think we've made for a very long time about the White House pandemic response. Uh, we have never said, do not confront the trade-offs. <laughs> right. We've said, confront them. Right. Here is what they are. <laughs> They're really important. Um, and, you have, to, you and have also, to pay
1: more attention to them, please, is basically and, and, all, and all also, he's
3: <laughs> And also, think about, in in thinking about the different options you have to deal with those trade-offs, be expansive and be appropriately expansive in your understanding of what it is within the scope of the federal government's power <laughs> to do. And, you know, it's like, OK, yeah. And you can the response to that is like, well, there's like a legitimacy crisis and we can't get anybody to agree on anything, whatever. But like at the very least, set up the conflict such that like that is exactly what you're doing. And instead... The kind of mode of rationality is to say, "Look, that's all too difficult that requires and 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 one f- for them, there's no really like powerful political energy they feel behind it, right, no, right. like there's no concerted social movement, you know you don't you like organized labor is as, as weak it's like what 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 the only thing that they're even mildly responsive to is like media shame, and <laughs> that is a very momentary and fleeting thing, so like the idea that, like Uh, We're going to do something in between. And it's like, well, what is that? And like, how many, like, what will be the effects of that? And, and like, who will lose a loved one as a result of that? Who won't versus anything else we might do? I mean, this is illustrative of why this, the uh, the economic rationality um, argument kind of like falls apart on closer inspection, not, Mm. not simply because cost benefit analysis is one approach to making decisions among others. Right. Um, but because in doing it, uh, or in, in making decisions that way, it forces you to, to pursue policy approaches that you cannot transparently justify to everyone. Like you have to sweep a lot of the consequences of them under the rug. Hence Something in between is the 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 highest level of clarity we should expect.
2: Yeah. And this great point, Phil. And this is super important because I think that this basically pervades, uh, you know, Ashish Jaws logic. I think I'm going to pivot a little bit from the sort of next one that I was going to play, because some of the things that you were talking about, specifically about what even is imagine what the role of the government could do in right, this situation, right. um, which, you know, you would imagine actually might be relatively important for someone going into the role, for example, of White House coronavirus response coordinator, uh, you know, being able to like ideally think about uh, the possibilities of for what government could do in a very expansive way. I want to highlight one comment in particular that Job makes during this interview about testing, which I think does highlight not only sort of how overall this framework does, his framework does redound to sort of these personal responsibility uh, frameworks that we've talked about uh, for a long time, but also uh, pay close attention to what he identifies as being sort of the problem with how testing and specifically rapid at home testing is done.
0: First of all, it shouldn't cost ten bucks because the actual cost of putting these things together is very, very low. Sense. Yeah, I sat there. I was like, "Sense is what I feel." And I'm not an economist. I don't play one on TV. But my sense is that something is going wrong with the market. There,
1: we call that a markup. Uh, that's a big. That's a high markup.
2: Yeah, <laughs>
0: and and the only way you get away with it, from my understanding, is if you don't have enough kind of competition. And this is where the <sighs> FDA in the United States has really failed us because they really restricted who could get into the antigen testing market. And, and that's getting better. The administration is finally pushing the FDA uh, to start allowing more of these tests in. But the point is that these tests should be super easy to get. I'd like to get to a point where it's about a bucket test.
1: Ooh, love oh, to see the like, return yeah. of the bucket test framework. I'm sure that will be immediately dropped if anyone ever asks him about that one again. Well, I mean, this
3: is the, this is the really funny thing which is like that is a critique that people made of the FDA from the beginning. Yeah. But the you know in the immediate when is that interview recorded Uh January, January. 2022 yeah, I mean like that is a uh you know months and months and months after the like very clear evidence that like Abbott Labs just destroyed a bunch of it's like testing stock
2: totally Uh mm-hmm.
3: in response to the, the administration's changing policies which they felt would de-emphasize uh, testing. I mean, like, I, w- we could talk about his logic here, but let's not over, in, in a way, I don't want to overanalyze it because this guy is just a professional, like, you know, striver who wants to find any a uh, sort of like, <laughs> what is his opinion? It's whatever will get him hired by the white house. Yeah. That's it. It's just, it's like not <laughs> you can't there. understand anything outside of that framework.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree with that. I do think obviously though, it is really important to highlight this. This is the incoming white house coronavirus response coordinator saying the sort of problem with at home rapid testing is there is not enough quote unquote market competition <laughs> there Not that, for example, there hasn't been, I don't know, a mass government initiative to send everybody many, many, many free tests over and over and over again, as opposed to the like four to eight that they may have requested at one point if they requested them. Right. Like this is not um, I I agree, like (laughs) not important to kind of overemphasize this because or to overanalyze this because, yes, yes it's pretty clear like there is angling here it is he is like the do not rock the boat guy he is mm-hmm. like they absolutely f- have found a person who has been already essentially a free mouthpiece for them who has also advised them on policy uh in the in the past which should give us pause as well because you know we know that some of the disastrous decisions that have been made there is a possibility that ashish was already consulted on those you know mm-hmm. what i mean so there's no there's like no surprises here. That doesn't mean that it's not important to like highlight. Those. Right, so, right. Um,
1: and, and this is also part of his sort of broader we have the tools argument that right. is a consistent feature of Jaws rhetoric, which is also, you know, something that we have critiqued the Biden administration for as being also a kind of empty promise and also critique people like David Leonhardt, who use the we have the tools argument to defend against criticisms that his advocacy you know, fucks over people who are medically vulnerable. So, you know, this is uh, to just sort of give an example of also like sort of what the general we have the tools argument is and how this whole like market competition for rapid testing fits into it. I just want to read you all uh, really quickly a brief tweet from September 4th, 2021 from Ashish Jha. He says, there are four tools to tame the pandemic. One, vaccines. Two, rapid tests. Three, improving indoor air. Four, masks. If we deploy the first three aggressively and smartly, we need only use the fourth sparingly and safely do essentially everything we value. (sighs) We have all the tools we need to end this pandemic. Cool. So that's just sort of, I, I, you know, if you're new to job if you're trying to get familiar with sort of what are the red flags when you start hearing him talk, that we have the tools argument is going to uh, stick out to you now. You will not be able to unsee that. Sorry.
2: Absolutely. Um, this brings me to the next point. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, you know, obviously it wouldn't be an interview with um, Emily Oster as a component of it without it being su- substantially about the school's situation and also this is it is actually relatively important to to pause and highlight uh this as a a part of it not only again as i mentioned because like you know schools have been this barometer basically of like you you look at someone's kind of take on covid in schools and you can imagine very easily you can pretty easily divine like a lot of their other what many of their other positions and held beliefs are going to be about covid it is important to highlight here that ashish jha one of the uh one of the things that he is explicit about in this interview is um in addition to saying things like uh emily has been like emily oster has been in some ways more right on schools than i have it has drawn, drawn attention to specifically that he is also one of these people who has been who had been for a very long time a proponent of reopening schools this is including like at times before we had Mm -hmm. you know the fucking arp funding or whatever went through which hasn't even you know necessarily made the full impact that it was intended to but uh there's an interesting moment where essentially the question is posed to the both of them amidst this is again recorded sort of amidst and just after teachers union sick outs and other things that happened in january like um student sick outs um, people uh deciding to you know, take action and say like, fuck this. This is really not safe. Yeah. Walk out. Um, And uh, Kara Swisher asks what the problem is here and who is sort of uh, the, as she frames it, who is to blame?
0: How, how do you both look at these sick outs that teachers are doing? And now, I know a lot of people are complaining about the Chicago sick outs. There was one in Washington, D.C. How do you look at those? A lot of people are saying, complaining. It's still yeah. not safe enough.
1: <laughs> who's who's to blame here?
0: Look, oh, I, I just came off of two weeks of clinical service in the hospital. I saw a lot of COVID patients. I had a patient I was seeing like sometime <sighs> last week, and like right in the middle of me examining him, he had a coughing fit, and coughed in my face like nonstop for a while. I did not freak out, and I don't think I was exposed because I was wearing a high-quality <laughs> mask, and I'm boosted. Like, That is available to every teacher in Chicago. So there's a little bit of like, what are we talking about? Like, what exactly is the risk if you wear a high quality mask and you're boosted? I'm sorry, but that risk of getting infected is somewhere very close to zero. It's not zero, but it's very, very close to zero.
1: (sighs) I mean, okay. It's the
2: teachers who are wrong.
1: Well, also, this is ignoring the fact that it's like, sir, when you're working in the hospital, your employer provides you with free high quality masks. When you are a Chicago public school teacher, like you are definitely not getting masks with the same generosity from your fucking employer. And you certainly were not getting them until... Chicago teachers walked out to pressure the school district in order to get them in the fucking first place. I mean, it's one of those things where you kind of see these classic, you know, these are the classic arguments against, oh, we don't really need to uh, unionize our workplaces. People can just learn how to be safe workers. They can just be better workers. They just need (laughs) mental health apps. You know what I mean? And this should be competition.
3: Yeah, this is the thing. It's so there's. Like in one sense, it's uh, you know, like one can evaluate any number of claims that she Shah has made against the evidence. Right. The claims that like we're not going to see a fourth wave. <laughs> oh, <laughs> w- won't we? Oops. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, you can you can do that. But there, there's another thing here, which is that it is a set of claims about like how things are done in the world and how like safety is achieved in the like she's world. Like one has to ask, like in the absence of teachers sort of pressuring for these things and then then have, you know, uh, actually getting them like, what, what would his, you know, like what would his ideal position on like, what was, what would safe enough be like, it's been a sort of moving target and You know, again, as you said, like a lot of the sort of really sort of weird things you said you were even before there was a vaccine, you know, vaccines or before, like, you know, kids were eligible for vaccines, you know. And again, it's it's not that I think he's so uh, special um, or uniquely responsible for for trying to, you know, get people to be more risk acceptant, because that's really like what the project of the biden administration i mean that would be and, a ridiculous thing like the thing federal to government claim. has like ul- never ultimately been yeah. right he's yeah he's, he's not uh unique in that regard but he's sort of emblematic of what the I, th- I think the sort of the problem has been and you know if you want an example of that simply look at what has happened in the united states it's not right. really that hard and it's also like you know people uh I think can uh, I've heard sort of accusations of provincialism. Oh, well, you don't, you're not really sure. Oh, like what are European countries doing? Is is the United States so exceptionally bad at This It's like, well, masks are still mandatory in, in, in on public transportation and many other uh, in many other public places in, in Italy, it doesn't seem to necessarily be uh, by all accounts, you know, making life uh, like abnormal in, in unpleasant ways it does have a way of keeping the spread down. Um, but it's just sort of like, the the question you have to ask is exactly what, you know, professional expert or moral claims on authority this person who is speaking, you know, essentially with authority has. Right. Right. What what is their claim to it? And Jaw's claim to it has seem seemingly has been nothing but loyalty. Loyalty has been his claim, you know, his purchase on authority. That is what has given him like that is what has given him authority in this very instance. Right and yeah. and to me, that also sends a te- you know, it sends a terrible message to anyone who is also like getting into the field of public health. It's like this is how you get this is how you uh, you know you you don't advance by telling the truth when it's un un unpleasant or uncomfortable, yeah. which is sort of you know been I think a sort of professional kind of idiom or holotype uh, within the public health field. Is go back to like I don't know. Uh, Henrik Ibsen. You could find like that sort of (laughs) example in like all the Henrik Ibsen plays. But like the, you know, like the way that you get ahead is just say whatever you think that they want you to say, right? And Mm -hmm. just keep saying it and you'll get, and you'll advance.
1: Right. And people might be like, oh, like you're being overly picky. Like it's just like word choice. And it's like, no, in this statement, right, Kara Swisher is like, you know, who's to blame basically for all of this outrage that Kara Swisher Describes that parents have about the school debate, right? That's essentially the question that she's asking. Who is to blame for the outrage that parents have over the school reopening debate? Mm-hmm. And Ashish Ja, he uses that framework of saying, well, you know, the teachers union is to basically blame and it's because they're over-exaggerating they're sort of hysterical yeah and you know uh their problem relative to my problem is a less worse problem and see what i you know it's this kind of and you need to call foul on that it's not nitpicking this stuff is like rhetorically powerful and it you know it like ushers frames into the world of like Telling other people how to think about what the teachers' unions did right. to protect themselves and how to think about how that fits into blame for outrage of a bunch of, you know, suburban. Upper middle income parents. Right,
2: exactly. And this is kind of the main point that I were maybe not the main point. This is kind of, I think, one of the the really important things to understand again about Jaw in terms of getting a view for his sort of overall ideological position. It is like in that statement, for example, where he is saying, uh, you know, as, as B rightly kind of just broke down you know kara swisher asking who is to blame here for all of the uh frustrations of the parents or whatever the parents who want like things open as opposed to the uh frustrations of the teachers or the students who walked out specifically mm-hmm. because they wanted you know better
1: Yeah, it really uh, points to
2: fucking health protection whose outrage it, who's- is
1: the most valuable outrage right, right? so
2: so ha- yeah exactly the, I guess, then question being, who is to blame for the justified outrage, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then, you know, as B said, Ash- Ashish Jaw's response is, oh, well, the teachers are just worrying too much. Mm-hmm. They haven't taken a, a real stock of their actual sort of risk uh, here. They haven't taken a real stock. They're, they're exaggerating their risk for whatever reason. And this puts him, uh, along with a lot of the other stuff that he says, frankly, it's just This is why it's sort of important to understand him as really situated within the sort of like broader ideological bubble that comprises people that we already talk about all the time, like David Leonhardt, for example, because it's very much the same line as David Leonhardt's thing that liberals overestimate their COVID (laughs) risk, right? Um, and also a lot of which the is somehow other...
1: a worse problem than covid itself
2: right and it's underpinned <laughs> you'll notice in a lot of jaws uh explications of his it's underpinned by this idea that we sort of have to um quote unquote meet people where they are that people are already done with covid and we have to accept that and the role of public health therefore is to sort of do this sort of you know very actually like lena Wen, like consumer driven approach or something towards like what people are actually able to or what they what they feel in -hmm. their very uh sort of in their
1: opinion yeah
2: in their opinion but also in their 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 sort of like yeah myopic overly paternalistic assumption (laughs) about what people are able to understand and care about right but Phil, I want to return to something that you said just earlier when you were talking about how this is someone who is basically operating as sort of a cipher. This is someone who is uh, clearly seems pretty aware of making sure that things are like at least not too far from the mark of exactly what the administration wants to hear. Um, I have sort of maybe this will be like a last clip. But so, you know, obviously we've been like looking to this Ashish John Emily Oster interview for a lot of the sort of insight here. I want to point to something that someone sent me from before the pandemic. Mm. Actually, this was sent to me by um, Micah Arsham. Thank you, Micah. It is from a uh, Harvard event in 2018 called Outbreak Week where Joss spoke and he also then introduced Michael Osterholm for a talk. And this is a brief clip that was just drawn to my attention that was a small thing that Joss said sort of. Uh, after Osterholm had spoken hmm. and as they were transitioning to the sort of Q&A session. Um, and listen this to is what, before the pandemic. This is pre-pandemic. twenty eighteen, Right, and listen hmm. to what um, Jaw said was his, he calls it a light bulb moment. Oh, interesting.
0: Okay, sure. Yep. And before, let's like maybe take five or ten minutes for questions. Before we do, I just want to reflect on your last set of points about science and how science has become captive to this issue, and science as advocacy. And science as advocacy has become, I think, like a pernicious problem that has invaded all of the things. Um, And my personal experience on this is a lot of what I have done is worked on uh, things related to the Affordable Care Act, just slightly politically um, uh, contentious. And uh, every single time I've had a paper that shows that some provision of the ACA is working well, I get cheered. And once I had a paper that showed that one of the provisions was probably doing more harm than good. And not only did I get landed, I read that paper by the way, <laughs> um, I got a phone call from a very close friend who was a senior official in the Obama White House, who basically said, "What are you doing?" I said, "What do you mean, what am I doing?" And he said, "Which team are you on?" Hmm and that was a moment that a light bulb that I was supposed to be part of a team as opposed to being able to look at the data and say guess what the ACA is not perfect and there are parts of it that are not working and we ought to try to fix it as opposed to yeah so this, is, this is well
3: he did learn a lesson
2: there did he not <laughs> there it sort of is right I mean
3: I mean not, this, you know, this not actually to say get... it's
2: like a full smoking gun but like well, that's, no no, that no, no, says no, no there's, there's no, that's that's come on. there's no smoking guns in this no. world but like
3: the look this is a person who you have to understand you, people do not have a tendency to want to see themselves as, you know, as as purely motivated by sort of professionalist ambitions to move up. They, people want in this, especially this field, this guy's like a Dean, like he's, he's, you know, to be a Dean, you have to tell a lot of people things that they want to hear. Right. Um, Right. (laughs) That's like, that's part of the, part of the thing. And you know, but at the same time, you cannot think of yourself as being um, completely, you know, just reacting to uh, those incentives in the world. You have to see yourself as a as a, as a truth teller. Right. And of course, like, you know, he, you know, had this career mainly of, of sort of writing about health services um, research. And, you know, it's look, uh, it is fairly easy, even if you're not conscious of it, if you're like an ambitious person and you don't you don't like wake up in the morning with like a particular compass on the world you're except just ambition um to even you know subconsciously intuit what people at higher levels of government want you to uh, say. And if you, it becomes even it's, first of all, it's easy enough. If you just like watch press conferences and it becomes even easier if you have (laughs) friends in the government uh, at very top levels, like it becomes very clear what the thing is that you, uh, you know, have to say, and who knows Uh, there might even be sort of like a philosophical, like, you know, underpinning that he's sort of convinced himself is what's really motivating him rather than just like, and you know, aspiration, but one way or another, like he, like the, The the implication of this, right, is there he's talking about like health services research and like research on like what the ACA is doing in the absence of doing really any substantive like knowledge development about uh, pandemics or infectious disease. He's now the infectious disease guy. He will be seen as the infectious disease guy and it will reinforce the idea that to really speak authoritatively on uh, infectious disease, what you need is power Mm
1: -hmm. mainly. Mm hmm.
3: Right, and and then in mm-hmm. fact, if you don't have it, you're not an authority. Yeah, right. Um, and and that's sort of the. I mean, I the only thing that I can imagine, like the the even under the best case scenario, like imagine the the the, the you know the the most the rosiest scenarios happen in the next like six months, right? Everything mor- almost miraculously, you know, returns to normal, um, norm quote unquote, um. I still think that you end up with like a public health profession that is absolutely gutted in its in in, in sort of public regard because of the the way in which people like John have sort of hijacked what what public health knowledge is.
1: Right. And I think the bottom line is, you know, uh, obviously the problem here is the policies, right? The problem is the failure to act. And the problem is the values and the priorities that have been forwarded here and the assumptions which have been taken and run with without a second thought as to how those could materially have some negative downstream impacts for some of the most vulnerable communities. Not to mention the fact that, you know, this is a absolutely – unprecedented attack on the labor force. I mean, it's like the most sickness that we're asking people to bear in a very long time in a very concentrated way. And that is immiserating. That is going to make workers miserable. So it is not just the vulnerable who are being left out here. It's all of us, right? Right. This is not a um, issue of um, constituencies this is a population level respiratory disease and the problem is not per se Ashish Jha or Jeff Zients the problem is the fact that the plan is full of shit yeah and that no one is doing what they're supposed to be doing right now if the goal is to have a sort of you know booming economy in a world where we live with the virus then that world is a world that has non-pharmaceutical mitigations that are robust and plentiful and free and easily accessible and that's not the world that we're walking into but that's the kind of world that Ashish Jha talks about when he talks about the world
2: we're actually walking into a world where the pharmaceutical interventions are themselves not even free anymore so exactly And Uh, you know,
1: I think the bottom line here is that it's important to remember: it's the problem, is the policy, not the fucking personality at the top. Yeah,
2: exactly. Even as we are cheering the departure of Mm science, good um, riddance. We, I think, need to point to the incoming person and say, it is not a we are we are not like things are not going to be better. Do not expect better COVID policy unless they are extremely, extremely pushed. To actually do things about this when the person coming in is basically, it seems, you know, the thought process was get me the guy from TV who already says that what we're doing is great. Get me the guy from TV who can rationalize the horrible decisions that we have made
1: that we've already made. Right. Yeah. And while you may want to give Jaws some deference because of his professional credentials, I think rather than um, sparing him your outrage as a professional sort of mode of respect, a better thing to do would be to actually trust that if he has these credentials that you believe in, right, that he will be receptive to your outrage if you press him maybe more so than Jeff Science. So in my mind, this is actually only an opportunity Jaws placement is only an opportunity to increase pressure critiquing the administration and increase pressure critiquing the response itself which is the the problem
3: the telegenicity is actually going to make this position categorically different than it was under it's like the fact that he's already known he's a public figure like that does set him up I think um probably more likely for criticism than praise in the end, right? Like everything is fine. As long as you're just commenting on what the administration's doing, Mm -hmm. being in that role and being telegenic means that you now get to, you know, face the onslaught when things go, uh, things go wrong. Assuming there's sufficient level of criticism (laughs) guys, do we have to like, Go on TV. I don't. I don't. I'm not telegenic. I don't. I I have face for radio. So
2: it's. I mean, it's depressing and very Trump era to think that basically, in order to get the attention of any of these people, you would have to like appear like screeching in front of a box with like an Arby's logo underneath you to get any (laughs) any attention. But I don't know. Fuck what i i have no fucking idea i mean in the same Death panel, <laughs> the Death panel the movie movie. well in the same week uh like somehow i don't know how anyone made this mistake but they let b go on the act like an axios podcast this week and you know they're all I'm,
1: very chill people right, yeah they're pretty cool
2: but uh you know and as i mentioned before people are already getting uh you know pundits are already getting uh a, li- a little uh Upset about the title yeah. of our forthcoming book, so you know Just I don't know.
1: Health communism be, is going to become an be. issue in the in the election, and we won't be able to it avoid going be. on television. Oh my god! Oh my hey.
2: god.
3: <laughs> and, you, and listen, you were smooth on Axios. I mean, you were no or jar, and
2: like pretty smooth. Get me that. <laughs> get me that communist.
1: Oh boy. Well, I think that's a perfect place to leave it for today. To help support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash panel pod. As a patron, you get access to our weekly bonus episode, which comes out every Monday. You get a discount on merch and access to the entire back catalog of patron-only episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends. Post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.
0: I agree. And actually, I think on the issue of schools, I think Emily has been more right than I have been. Um, it has been amazing to me that this issue keeps popping up. Yeah, so credentials matter, right? It's not like oh credentials don't matter at all. And with all due respect, if Emily started talking about like CD8 versus CD4 T cells and why she thinks that the third boost really changes the mix, I'd be like, you know, Emily, I'm not sure this is <laughs> this is what I want to hear from you, but I do want to hear about that. From someone like Akiko Iwasaki, who's at Yale, who's a superb immunologist. And I'll I'll talk about Emily specifically because she has gotten a lot of criticism for, quote unquote, not being an expert. And what I think of her expertise is she brings data and she brings really thoughtful analysis to that data. And you can disagree with Emily Oster, but in my mind, you can't disagree unless you're bringing better data.